You're listening to Cinema Rex, a podcast about Iranian films. Episode 1, Abbas Kiarostami's Where is the Friend's House? How do we say we start this? Durud Bishoma. Dustana Aziz. I guess either Durud Bashoma or Dustana Aziz, dear friends. One or the other. Let's just go with both for this one. Okay, sure. That works. Durud Bashoma. Dustana Aziz. Welcome to the Cinema Rex podcast. My name is Kaveh Mohebi. And I'm Farhan Moradi. And we're uh, two filmmakers from Canada, Iranian filmmakers, who have decided to start a podcast on Iranian cinema. Why have we decided to do this? Well, you mentioned to me that there wasn't one when you were looking into podcasts, and it seemed like a, a bit of a gap. It seemed like there was a lot of people who started one a started podcast on Iranian cinema, but got like one episode in, and then they would stop. Like it was like their last and only episode was in 2015. And so I think if we just get one episode, if we get two episodes down, we're already killing it. We're number one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and for the very first episode, we're going to be doing 1987 Abbas Kiarostami's Where is the Friend's House? Um, a film that I think not only gets uh, a lot of celebrated attention, uh, rightfully so, but it's one of the few films that really encompasses the idea of Iranian cinema uh, and amongst Kiarostami's work is one of those few standouts, not few, but one of the many standouts um, in his collection and his works. Um, how do you feel about this specific film? Um, overall, I like it a lot. The, mm-hmm. the film is set in, I think, Gilan, like the province, right. which it... Linguistically, it borders Azeri and Mazandarani, which are the two sides of, of my family. I don't know if it geographically does, but linguistically, at least, it's close to both of those languages. So there's parts in the movie that the accents or when they switch to, to languages specific to the village, they're definitely nostalgic for me, either because I've, I grew up around relatives who spoke those languages or, you know... I would watch VHS tapes that were sent from Iran where our family would have recorded video messages for us and we would watch those. So in a lot of ways, it feels nostalgic. You're almost watching a slice of life from your family. Yeah, so like you, it feels personal to you almost. Mm-hmm. Or like yeah. It feels like something, it feels like home in a sense. I yeah, guess yeah, yeah, yeah. You were born and raised there. What, what, how old were you when you moved to Canada? No, I was born and raised here. Yeah, born and oh. raised here. So that's why it's even weirder that to me it feels nostalgic. Um, but yeah, a big you visited though. I've never visited either. No, I, it's like a nostalgia for a place you've never been. Exactly, which is a a weird feeling to have, especially, and I'm sure you've experienced this to some degree, and and a lot of the listeners probably also. Um, it's this weird feeling of knowing that you're Canadian, right? And that you're born and raised here, you know the language, I know the history and the politics of Canada really well, I can speak French and English fluently, but always feeling like I'm not from here. People will sometimes make comments or approach dialogue in a way that makes me feel like I'm not from here. 
Right. Despite the fact that I've never been to Iran either. And sometimes right. I'll meet Iranians who comment on my accent when I speak Farsi. Um, but growing up with, you know, we would have phone calls with my, my grandparents or my aunts and uncles and my cousins um, and receiving videotapes from from my dais, my khale, my ammus, my ammes. They would send them and you would sit there and your parents would pop in this VHS tape and... At the time, I was like, oh, this isn't a big deal, whatever, because you're like five or six. But they would be overwhelmed with emotions watching these videos because mm-hmm. they would go to like this village where like one family member lives. They'd go to the city. They'd go to somebody's house, someone's apartment. And, they're, and they'd just be recording little bits and pieces of people living their lives. And you would get this insight into family dynamics in Iran, which I feel like this film does that in a, in a lot of ways where it doesn't yeah. necessarily feel like a fictional film. And it just feels like you're watching the lives of these people in Gilan. Yeah. And I think it, the, like, I mean, we should also start by saying that you, you are a film director and I'm, I'm a film, I'm a writer, I'm a screenwriter. And mm-hmm. we both are actually luckily enough or through the force of, you know, sheer will we've managed <laughs> to carve careers for ourselves in this industry. But, um, I, I think what will be really interesting throughout the, the rest of this podcast is you you approach a lot of these films paying close attention to the cinematic language, the uh, use of photography, cinematography, colors. I, I feel like you have that innate skill embedded in you, and I'm I'm more, maybe not more so than you, but I definitely know that my personal talents really lie rely more on character and structure. And mm-hmm. in Iranian films, like you were just saying, a lot of them don't really rely that much on structure. It's very slice of life and mm-hmm. very much like um, documentary style, even when it is narrative fiction. Um, and that makes it an interesting watch for me because it kind of feels like Iranian films do something that no other cinema does it's mm-hmm. just kind of like the line between reality mm-hmm. and narrative is so razor thin mm-hmm. razor sharp that you don't know what you're watching mm-hmm. often and i feel like that's the case well for this you can definitely tell there's a narrative story but mm-hmm. you know this is the first of the coker trilogy and as you see in the rest of the films that he does in this trilogy it becomes more and more documentary style like mm-hmm. he starts he starts becoming the story about the story about the making of the story mm-hmm which is just fascinating. And I think we're going to have a lot of interesting discussions throughout the rest of these podcasts about just our different approaches on what it meant to us and, and yeah. I don't know, how we respond to it. With, with this film too, also coming back to, you know, mentioning I'm a director, you're a writer. Um, there were a couple comments made in the, the Q&A that's included in the Criterion Blu-ray where someone was like, did this movie have a, a script? And Kurosami starts laughing. He's like, well, of course I had a script. And th- but the mm-hmm. fact that you asked me that is a massive compliment as a writer. Yeah. That you thought that this was just, you know, I just walked around with a camera and filmed people. <laughs> and then yeah. he, he shares this anecdote of um, him being in the airport the day after the movie uh, screened on television in Iran. And uh, people getting into an argument and kind of laughing about what he did on the film because someone was like oh i saw your movie blah 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 blah, and someone gets into an argument with that guy and it turns out that that guy thought that the movie didn't have a director he, right, he yeah, just assumed right. yeah you just assumed that someone was walking around with a camera like capturing the stuff so yeah, yeah so this this idea of it feeling like a slice of life i think is is uh a lot of people share that sentiment i'm excited 
as we get into the podcast and talk about it more, um, to talk about how much of the things shown in the film are meant to be allegory and symbolism and how much of it was just like, no, no, that's just very right. literal. But we can talk totally. about that later because I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that. Great. Now I'd like to play for you a small excerpt from Criterion's interview with Michael Sarah on Where is the Friend's House? You've confessed that you're a Kiarostami fan. Yeah. What led you to Where's the Friend's House? That one has had such an impact on me. The first thing you see in the movie is this teacher really upsetting these kids, just making them feel like they're horrible people, just because they've basically been talking and having fun when he wasn't in the room, and they haven't done their homework, and they'll have no future, and they're going to be expelled if they don't do it. And the kid's just cowering and terrified. You're immediately entranced. And then you see this kid cry, you know, in like the first minute of the movie. It's an incredible way to get you to invest in something by making your sympathy register just go through the roof right away, which is the whole charge of the story of the movie, is seeing this kid feel sympathy for the other kid. This is kind of like his 400 blows, you know? Like it might be directly from his childhood. It gives you a sense of what it's like to be a little kid in Iran mm. and how impossible that is. I mean, that's basically the story. It's completely realistic and somehow within that takes on this kind of magical realism. Um, well, with that, we can, if you'll allow me, I'll dive into a quick plot summary. Um, just so that anyone who has maybe never seen the film might listen to this podcast and either be interested in watching it or at least know what we're talking about. Uh, but for those who have seen this film, maybe they haven't seen it recently, just a little bit of a refresher. Uh, so with your permission. As the film opens, a young grade schooler named Ahmad, played by Babak Ahmadpour, watches as his teacher berates a fellow student, Mohamed Reza, for repeatedly failing to use his notebook for his homework, threatening expulsion on the next offense. When Ahmad returns home, he realizes he's accidentally taken Mohamed Reza's notebook. To prevent his friend from being expelled and against his mother's orders, Ahmad sets out on a journey zigzagging across the neighboring villages of Pushte and Kokar in search for Mohamed Reza's house, encountering false leads, dead ends, and distractions as he attempts to enlist adults in his search, most of whom ignore him or cannot answer his questions. His quest becomes both a revealing portrait of rural Iranian society in all its richness and complexity and a touching parable about the meaning of personal responsibility. This film was Kiarostami's first film to gain major international attention. It won the Bronze Leopard at the 1989 Locarno Film Festival and the Golden Plate at the Fadge Film Festival. The film is on the BFI's list of 50 films to see by the age of 15. It has a Rotten Tomato score of 100% and an audience score of 92%. Farhan, what are your thoughts on those reviews and those remarks already? I had no idea that the, the Rotten Tomato score was so high. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's more surprising to me because, because it is a slice-of-life story, it's shocking to me how critically acclaimed it is. And I'm not saying it's not deserved. I'm just saying oftentimes movies that are critically acclaimed are movies that... You know, they end very obscurely and it, and it ends in tragedy and there's, there's all these conversations and discussions and philosophical debates and all this stuff. But the fact that this slice of life film 
is thrusts this mm-hmm. guy into international stardom i think is really fascinating and i think it's reflective of the multifaceted interests of audiences yeah and i think and we'll get to it we sort of talk about critical reception and some trivia facts but i think it really opened up maybe for the first time internationally um iranians to the type of poetic sentiments they have like iranians have always been known for being wonderful poets but and yes there had been previous films like the cow but i think for the first time kiarostami sort of like shook the world in the poetic cinematic language that Iran is capable of, not just in the the writing, but in terms of the landscapes and the use of, you know, he, he thrives off showing these small villages. That's where he's like comfortable. And, and he finds such profound beauty in these small villages and some within some of the poorest people in the country. And I think that is what kind of touched at least the festival crowd, you know, mm-hmm. it might've not, might not have been like the popcorn, Michael Bay, like yeah, go see yeah, a movie yeah. on Saturday night at the theater, but it was definitely like a festival film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of what like instantly sparked, uh, attraction to mm-hmm. him and other Iranian filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask you a question though? One thing that's yeah, yeah. always bugged me always. Why is it called? Where is the friend's house? Because I've always thought of it like, it's grammatically incorrect. Like, it's just, where is my friend's house? But yeah. I feel like somewhere through translation, where is the friend's house became the the most popularized version of the translation. And it seems almost too literal. Yeah. I, do, do you have thoughts on that? I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like a self-indulgent, artsy-fartsy <laughs> translator trying to make it sound as artistic as possible. Yeah, okay. Um, because... I think it's actually meant to be from the perspective of the mom asking the kid. Oh, because she's okay. the one that, like, if you go by the Farsi title, she's the one that utters that line. So if right. you were to translate it more accurately, it would actually be, where is your friend's house? Right? Then why isn't it, your, where is your friend's house? There must be some reasoning behind, like, oh, this sounds like it's a different kind of movie from what it is and blah, 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 blah. So that's my guess. I find a lot of Iranian cinema is overly dissected to the point where people are making inferences where there nece- aren't necessarily any to be made. Mm-hmm. Sometimes things are meant to be literal and straightforward and just like, no, that's the way it is. That's that's life, right? And that right. is reflected, I think, in this idea of this being a slice-of-life film. Or how a lot of these Iranian filmmakers, the motif that they explore is the motif of perspective, like this whole right. film, you can make the argument that it's it's all about perspective. The perspective of of children, uh, that they the perspective that children have on other kids, children have on their parents, children have on the elderly, um, as well as parents on children, parents on the elderly, elderly on grandchildren. Um, but listening to the Q and A's, people keep asking them like, "Oh, what is the symbolism behind this?" or "What is the symbolism behind that?" and a lot of these critics make comments or festival programmers make comments where they're trying to make these deep connections and, and maybe these deep inferences where they're not necessarily there. So I don't know. That's right. just a thought. I mean, yeah, I also feel like that's just sort of the subject. That's the nature of um, filmmaking or any mm-hmm. art really. Cause there's something I'm going to bring up later with his fascination with doors which I find so weird and interesting. And, you know, it can't just be he likes the way doors look. 
I mean, there, there. Obviously, he does like the art behind doors, but he really, really centers a lot of his career around the framing of doors in, in yeah. cinema, and also in like photographing doors. And there's, yeah, you could just look at it and be like, well, he likes doors, but there's also some, there's some fun in playing with the poetic nature of right. what that represents. Did you see his answer to the the question that someone posed to him about doors? Which no, which one? Do you want it? We say? can save it for trivia. Or like when you want to talk about that later. Sure. Because okay, he, someone sure. asks him directly, like, is there a meaning behind how much importance you put around doors, like photographs in this movie, blah, 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 blah. And he talks about it. What does he say? He says that uh, it's, to- it's a total coincidence. Okay. And that it's not meant to be symbolic. He didn't necessarily always have a meaning behind the use of a door, especially in regards to this film. He says, but then Mm -hmm. he goes on to give a philosophical answer and says that doors are always super important and there's practical purposes to all of them. We don't even realize how important they are in our day-to-day lives. And every door tells a story. There's a history behind it, its use, who built it, when it was made, what materials it was made from, etc. But that wasn't his intention. He only gets into this philosophical side of things because... This guy asks him the question and he's like, oh, right. that's really interesting. He's like, that wasn't my intention. I was just trying to show doors for like a literal use in those situations. Right? Right. I, I, it's, and when we get to the digging deeper section, yeah. I, will, I will return to that because I feel like even just the old man that he meets is obsessed with talking about doors and windows. Yeah. You know, Ahmed's walking around and this guy is like a door maker and a yeah. window maker. So yeah. it's not just... He's taking photos of doors. It's like he's embedded it within the characters he's creating in the film. Mm-hmm. And the guy... The guy that he follows quotes, on the donkey, that guy's a door maker. Exactly. Like, it's, it's, there's a, it's a literal... It's a motif throughout mm-hmm. the script. The door at the, the beginning in the, in the classroom that keeps the, opening and closing. It's but, the opening but, shot. It's the first shot of the film. But he says, and he, like, affirms this, that it's a total coincidence that he didn't have any symbolic meaning behind it, at least with this film in particular. And that right. he, but, <laughs> but he, he thought it was an interesting question that was posed by the guy in the audience. And I think that he was gracious enough to indulge in the metaphors with him. I think with his, with his photo series, it's a little different. Right. But yeah. specifically with this movie, he says that it's coincidental. Well, the great thing about cinema is once he puts the film out there, yeah. it's up for everyone's interpretation. Yeah, it's no and longer his film. Who is Kiarostami to tell Kabba yeah. Mahibi what Kiarostami's film is about? <laughs> but that's what I mean. Is like That's why I love talking about Iranian cinema. It's because oftentimes people will watch things and be like, wow, what is the meaning behind it? And sometimes it's like, there's no meaning. It's just a door. But then when you ask the guy who made the thing, he's like, oh, that's actually a really interesting thought. Like, let's, let's talk about it. And then he talks right. about like, then he gives a very poetic answer, which, is, which was a beautiful answer. Um, but I just think it's it that conversation encapsulates Kiarostami's place in cinema to me. Right. Well, let me ask you about this then with Kiarostami and a lot of other Iranian filmmakers. They often work with children, but they don't they're not necessarily making children's films. Yeah. Like, where's the friend's house? Isn't necessarily like, oh, you sit down with a bunch of six year olds and watch this movie. It's a film for adults. Right. Mm-hmm. But but they're either featuring a lot of them feature children protagonists protagonists Mm -hmm. and you know 
is it about the sense of adventure and discovery and innocence that, you know, exists within a kid? Or is it because like he was able to find kids, you know, like what was his, what do you think his fascination is with casting children in films? Cause he does it quite often. Mm. So I can't speak for Kiara Stami, but I like speaking, I like working with act with uh, children because children have a much more direct way of looking at life. Like things are either black or they're white, they're right or they're wrong. They don't, necessarily see the nuance in things and i think Mm -hmm. that it's a it's a really great way to showcase the innocence of a character without showing them as naive because if you have an adult character who sees the world as that typically they're naive but a child you kind of grant them a little bit of grace in that area which i think thematically is really great have you had experience working with uh, children as a director yeah so tehranto very minimally but I made a short film called Black Powder and Guilt and Black Powder mm-hmm. and Guilt was all about innocence lost and this young child who witnesses a traumatic event happen to his younger brother that leads to him having lifelong trauma. And the film is all about discovering exactly what happened and why he feels personally responsible for that. Wow. Okay. How um, old was the kid? I think they were like 12 and 10. Mm. I could be wrong. I think they were like 12 and 10. So you probably resonate with Kiristami on on that idea of working with kid actors and finding that nuance. I think so, yeah. And I've also directed cool. a lot of kids TV. And and again, right, with, with kids TV, it's the same idea that when you're working with these children, if you treat them with respect and you treat them with dignity... And you actually listen to what they have to say as opposed to ignoring what they're doing, even when they're goofing around. Like if you just ignore them, and you're like, guys, can we focus? Can we focus? Like that doesn't resonate well with them because they're right. like, oh, this guy doesn't respect my time. He doesn't respect who I am as a person. And sometimes children will fall in line with what that director's saying out of fear. And having worked as an editor on kids TV, you can see how children react to different kinds of directing. And in some right. cases, directors will do things to try to trick an actor to do what they want. And in other cases, they'll actually work intimately with that kid and be like, okay, how are we, how do you want to do this? Like, um, what do you think the character's thinking here? You know, you're really working with them. Even your body language, where some directors might come in and they'll kneel or they'll lean over to talk to a kid to get on the same height level. Yeah. is very patronizing to a child. And I don't think people realize that. But if you're speaking to this child as a professional, they're on that set, same as everybody else. They're putting in the hours to memorize the lines. They're getting up early. They're coming to work. If you stand and they're standing and you're just talking to each other as professionals, you'll get way better performances. Yeah, I read once somewhere that Kiarostami was a teacher before he worked in advertising and advertising before he was a filmmaker. But then after that, I couldn't find anywhere uh, corroborating the evidence, the, the fact that he was a teacher. So I'm not entirely sure that's correct. Mm. But he has a clear fascination with not only students, but teaching and the education system. Because, mm. you know, there's a companion documentary he made to this film mm-hmm. called Homework, which I watched for this podcast. And it's just a series of interviews with children about mm. why or why not they hadn't done their homework. But then he did a another uh, short film called The Tribute to Teachers. And um, he's just fascinated with Iranian society and its education system. And uh, one, you know, his directorial style was often described as, quote, 
a patient teacher in a room full of earnest but slow learners. <laughs> so I feel like he just had the sort of um, he had the makings of a director that would be very patient with young actors, even mm. if at times it would be sort of manipulative in an artistic sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, with that, we could sort of go into our, our behind the scenes section mm-hmm. of of the podcast. You were telling me earlier about one of the stories about how his directing style was with the uh, the kid in the opening scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so people have asked him because he's known for tricking his actors um, mm-hmm. and manipulating the, their emotions to try to get whatever response he wants on on camera. And with that, with the the little boy who doesn't do his work, what he was doing was through throughout that day. There was another person on set who was taking photographs of the Polaroid camera. And this little boy never had a photo mm-hmm. of himself. And so a right. few times, Kiorostami, to like set up this thing, kept being like, you don't get to have a photo. Other people can, but you can't. You're not allowed. And he tells him three times. And then yeah. finally, the guy with the Polaroid takes a photo of him, and then he tries to hide it. And then Kiorostami confiscates the photo of him and this kid apparently loved this photo it was his favorite photo because he had he had never had a photo before and he rips it up in front of him and then the kid starts crying and then with the cameras rolling that's the shot and he and he uh as he's rolling on him he's like how many times did i tell you that you don't get to have a photo right huh and then he's like crying and he's sobbing he's like how many times did i tell you yeah. And then he's like, three times. He's like, that's right. I told you three times that you don't get to have a photo. And, and they, that's the dialogue. And that's yeah, the dialogue. So the dialogue yeah. in the movie is how many times have you not done your homework? And he just responds three times. Yeah. And to me, it's, I think it's, I don't like it. I think it's very cheap. Um, it's dark. <laughs> it's dark. Um, and he says that's the only way to get them to feel it and not just pretend. And I hate that because yeah. to me, it comes back to this thesis of conformity uh, uh, pays, which which is kind of hinted at in the film when the the old man or the grandfather is telling this wise story to his buddies. He's like, yeah, you know, when you I knew this guy who got paid half as much as a foreign engineer because the foreign engineer only needed to be told something once. So he got 12,000 toman. But because this Iranian engineer needed to be told multiple times, he only got paid half as much. So conformity pays. Like, you know, you do as you're told, whatever. Right. And to me, it comes back to that because it's like you don't need to do these weird things to get a result. Right. It's BS. And I think that that to me, that was the point of that scene is he's trying to show, oh, yeah, sometimes people think they're so wise and they come up with these weird anecdotes to make a point. And it doesn't need to be done. And I think that's the same thing here. I think real actors, talented actors, you need to trust them to be able to do that themselves. Some actors will draw from their own experiences, but that's not on us as directors to trick them into doing. And I think it's, I don't think that any work of art is worth imparting some sort of trauma on somebody. So that's something that I'm really disappointed by. I, for one, am a huge proponent of emotional abuse on children as long as it gets the performance out of them, goddammit. 
Um, <laughs> I'm That's obviously awesome. kidding. Um, uh, well, the one a little interesting behind the scenes fact I was able to pull was the uh, first of all, I love the final image in the movie, mm-hmm. the flower. Mm-hmm. I really, the first time I'd seen it, I was like, oh, it's really beautiful, and I don't know why. It's touching, it really kind of gets to me, and I couldn't figure out why. And hearing in that same interview, he t- discusses that it was never planned to be the final image. He he was struggling on what the final image of the film should be. And then when doing so, he remembered earlier having shot a scene where the old man hands the kid a flower. And he's like, hey, if, if my tracking of the story is correct, that flower should still be in his book. So they quickly found another flower placed in the book and pressed it in the pages. And we're like, and sure enough, he was like, this is the final image. So I really liked the idea that this was never like a planned final shot. It was just something in the... It really speaks to like the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the the chaotic and beautiful nature of kind of filmmaking on the spot. You That's know, cool. Never in the script. Because what yeah. what I was hearing is actually a little different than what you heard. What did you hear? The story that I heard was that when he was writing the script, he he pulled that from an experience that he had had with someone where he was having troubles and someone like picked a flower and gave it to him and was like, you know, keep this with you. It'll make you feel better, blah, 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 blah. And he thought that it was just a really sweet thing that someone had done with him. So he wrote it into the script because he was trying to make the script longer. He was like looking for things to put in because he previously preferred to do short films until your family friend, the producer, was like... (laughs) Batman Famino. Yeah, he was like, why don't you make a feature film? Right, and make yes. more feature films. And so he was looking for things to make it longer. So he wrote in this experience that he had with the flower. But then when they went to shoot that last scene, he forgot to put the flower back in the, in the book. Oh, And so I see. as they're filming the scene, they were already rolling on it. He yells out like from behind the camera. He's like, a void, like, oh no, like, oh man. Like he forgot to put the flower in. And then okay, they're like, right, they, yeah, they yeah. were about to stop the take and they're like, whoa, what's wrong? And he's like, nothing, nothing, nothing. Just keep going. And then as the kid is going through it, he flips through to the to that page. And sure enough, the flower was still there. And just by right, like, pure okay. chance, like he had forgotten that they needed to go back and put that in. But right, by pure it chance, it was still there from when they had filmed the other scene where the right, old man okay. puts You know it what? In. That, is, that is also, the, I'd heard that version too, that the, the serendipitous nature. But I think... Maybe the story I remember hearing then I was mis- it was during the writing phase though that he mm. had remembered because I think it was about the idea of like not knowing how to end it maybe at the script stage mm. and realizing going back in his mind of the scenes. Oh yeah, maybe. But uh, but uh, yeah, like that. I just really really love that final image and I think it's 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 beautiful. Probably, yeah, it's probably one of the most beautiful. Fi- it's it's in there like top ten for me, top five maybe even for final like images oh nice I'm, i think of this as a screenwriter like i'm always about like when i put the scripts i'm like what's the first thing we see and what's the last thing we're left with mm. and i always like to bookend those some way mm. and i don't think these necessarily parallel each other but i think there's a very purposeful use of a door half shut door being the first image and a flower in a book you know it's mm-hmm. they're not really paralleling each other they're not really like you know mirror opposites mm-hmm. but they sort of, I think they're just so purposeful and yeah. they say something, whether that's beauty and freedom versus the school, te- the school's locked doors or whatever. Yeah. There's something there. Coincidentally, someone also asks him about the symbolism behind the flower. And again, and he, he says, oh, nothing. It was just something cool that happened to me 
And I thought it would be a nice little detail to put in the story to make the story longer. You know, there's a good chance, too, that true artists like Kurosami have to give those answers. Maybe. Because if they sit there and start explaining everything one by one, they're kind of like revealing the magic trick. Maybe, maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I, do you find as a, as a filmmaker that people, you know, pull out things that you never meant to put in there? And and And... Conversely, have you ever found that you've put something in there very deliberately and maybe people haven't noticed? Oh, like constantly. Intention? Constantly. Right. And it's like, it's frustrating <laughs> when you put something in and nobody notices it sometimes. Sometimes you put a little Easter egg in and someone notices it and you're like, <laughs> like it was so nice. worth it. Like I've, I've put in like memes into things before in the background and like had one person <laughs> out of like thousands come up to me like, hey, you know that? scene in Toronto where like he's calling to the kitchen and like they start singing and dancing off camera it's like yeah they're like is that a reference to this one meme I was like yeah and I'm like so happy which meme is it a reference to there's this Arafashid meme it's like a prank call okay, it's from Miron I'll send it to you it's pretty funny okay sure yeah I don't know it um but but then sometimes people will be like oh when you do this thing and this happens like it's about this, right? And then it's like, well, that's not what I intended, but that's that's a really great, you know, inference to make. And then having that right. conversation, which I I will say, because he's very poetic as a person, when people point these things out, he engages in that dialogue. He engages in that conversation where he's like, you know, the story behind why that happened is very literal. But yeah. now that you mention it, da 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 da, da which I right. think is is really great of him to do instead of just being on that stage and being like, "Yeah, no, that wasn't my intention." Next question. He's like, "You know, I didn't mean that, but now that you mention it, let's talk about that." I think it's, I think that that is a very gracious way to to tackle that, and it shows that he has a poetic nature about him. So, okay, speaking about the poetic nature, let's go to the section I'd like to call deeper analysis, mm. like the, the, the themes and subtext of, of the film. What do you, like, thematically think? What would you say this film is about? Because I have a bunch of, like, I'm like the high school kid who wrote, like, three different answers instead of giving one thorough answer. I'm like, it's also this and this and this. I have a bunch of things that I'm fascinated with, yeah. but I'd like you to start to take it away of like the themes you think he's interested in exploring in this film. Yeah. I think that stripped down to its core, a big part of the movie is about perspectives. So perspective of the kids, yeah. perspective of the parents, of the elderly. Um, I think the idea that conformity pays is such an interesting one. Yeah. Cause it, Every time this kid is like trying to get his point across, everybody's like, no, you sit down and you do what you have, like what I'm telling you to do. Otherwise, you're going to get, yeah, they're ignoring him. Or he gets like something thrown at him. He gets like threatened that he's going to get hit in the head. He gets, mm -hmm. there's this threat of, ex, of uh, expulsion for the one kid, right? Um, but he knows that sometimes doing what's truly right comes at that personal cost. Um I think also learning how to speak with someone with dignity. There's themes of ageism there, of responsibility, of community. Um, yeah, that's kind of the, the crux of it for me is, is this idea of, of perspective and dignity. Yeah, I see the, the perspective and dignity a lot. 
Um, I don't see the conformity one as much, which is why I find your analysis really interesting. Mm. My main takeaway, can I, can I lay this on you? Yeah, Ready? absolutely. I, I think it's about kindness and the value of empathy and the importance mm. of personal responsibility. Because I think with like using the child actors and, and the innocence that children have, you know, like it, it touches even a lot of the most cynical adults mm -hmm. and it like resonates with them. And I think this idea of, uh, if you like, I did the math and he was like, 47 when he made this film mm -hmm. he's almost 50 and there's a whole other thing about i'll get into about like the passage of time and the, you know modernization versus tradition with the doors but mm -hmm. i think when you talk about like the the journey that this kid is in on and the journey that a lot of his characters are on through many of his films mm -hmm. um they often end actually pretty sad like and life goes on ends with you don't know if he's going to find the kids in a taste of cherry, you don't really. It, it's like this guy's on a, on a journey to commit suicide, and you don't really know how that's going to end. It's not always a satisfying ending, mm. but with this, it's like very clear that after he fails to find his friend in his friend's house, mm -hmm. he decides to stay up all night and do his friend's homework for him, mm -hmm. and it, you know, cul culminating in this act of like he's sitting there and like even the the wind is blowing so hard it knocks the door open yet mm -hmm. another door, and it's this happy ending which is really mm -hmm. rare for him and it's i feel like it's his celebration of moral integrity and being good to one another mm -hmm. there's something about um uh, you know the kid is doing the homework at the end and essentially ahmed is committing a revolutionary act mm. um it's not really clear in the in the final scene what he's doing but you know nature erupts against against this it's trying to corrupt this kid's act again i'm getting mm -hmm. too poetic with it but i i feel like in the end it's celebrating friendship, fidelity, commitment, mm -hmm. independence, generosity, and it's like standing in defiance of nature. Mm. Something about an ending on that flower. It's, mm -hmm. I, I think he's profoundly interested in people doing good for mm -hmm. one another and being essentially just being bros, man. It's like, mm -hmm. or, you know, being, being humans to one mm -hmm. another. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Like, do you not find kindness and empathy being such a major factor in this? No, story? I think so, absolutely. And I think that's that's kind of why for me it, it comes back to the it comes back to speaking to one another with dignity is that same thing of also, you know, treating people with kindness and having empathy yep. towards other people. And when it when it tackles things like ageism and the weight of responsibility and community. I think, again, it ties back into what you were saying about kindness and empathy. One thing that I find interesting is that someone points out, and this is kind of the, the same feeling that I got from the film, was this idea that children are often neglected by adults and they're, they're often not taken seriously uh, and they don't, adults don't listen to children. Mm -hmm. um, while ironically, when the when the kids are around elderly, like people who are like old and sick or old and frail, old and weak. Now he's being a jerk to them. He's like, no, no, just come. And that old lady's like, no, I'm sick. He's like, yeah, yeah, just come, just come. Or like the <laughs> yeah, old guy right. who's like, I'm coming as fast as I can. He's like, look, you're going slow again. Like it's. Yeah. Yeah. You're too slow. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, because when I talk, I slow down. He's like, well then don't talk. Yeah. Just yeah, keep yeah, moving. yeah. Um, yeah. So someone asks him and then he's like, um, he ends up quoting Balzac where he says, uh, as a child, parents don't listen to us. And as parents, our children don't listen to us. And then he says that in right. his estimation, ch it's children who don't listen more often. And he says that right. his film is meant to show that. 
is meant to show that children don't listen more often, which was surprising to me. Because for me, it's like, oh, clearly this whole movie could have been resolved if parents listened to him. Just listen. But I think yeah, he makes the counterpoint you. that, well, if he just listened to his parents, then it's not on him. That kid might get in trouble, but it, that's whatever. Like, yeah. that's just the way it is. You've got to prioritize what your parents are like. No, in the long run, your your studies are what's important. Sit here and do your studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, we touched on the flower a little bit, but the one thing I was going to add was um, the flower that is in the book. Forget about the directing for a second. It's like in the world of the film, mm-hmm. the Ahmed doesn't even know the flower. Like he doesn't remember the flowers in there. He didn't put it there as a message, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't see... Um, his friend, Mohammed Riza, the kid who's in trouble. Mm-hmm. We don't even really see him react to it. So it's almost like a flower that's just sitting there for the audience mm-hmm. to see. Mm-hmm. And what I took from that in this deeper analysis section is that it's like the flower is a gift Kiarostami is giving the boys, or at least mm. Ahmed, as like a, it's, he's, a re, he's celebrating and rewarding Ahmed's kindness mm. in an otherwise cruel and indifferent world. Like... There's something about the flower just existing there and it's not a thing that anyone reacts to or mm. says like this is like it's just kind of there. Mm. And it's just like a gift from the director or maybe from fate based on the story you were mm-hmm. saying that it just happened to be there. Mm. But that's one of the things I really like about the flower too is mm-hmm. kind of like a little bit of touch of sweetness at the end mm-hmm. of like good job. You you know, you you stood by one another. That's actually really beautiful. I really like. Yeah, I love that. I love that aspect of what he does, those little touches. Um also, I will say, okay, let's let's just take a quick detour and like disagree violently about the doors and windows. Okay, okay. Because I think it's it's such a strange obsession he has. Yeah. His 25, 2015 um, ph- photography series was called Doors Without Keys, right? Yeah. And Which is at Aga Khan. He, he, that's what he was partially there to promote when he does this Q&A, where he denies right. the door thing. Yeah. But I don't... Like, so do you agree with, do you believe that a door is just a door? Because to me, it's, I'm like, but they're everywhere and they're beautiful and he pays so much attention to them. Maybe doors are to Chiara Stami as feet are to Tarantino. <laughs> Tarantino? You know I mean? Maybe it is He's like, got a door fetish? Yeah, maybe in his earlier, yeah. in his earlier days, he didn't realize <laughs> that he had such a fascination with doors. Yeah. So I don't know if it was intentional, like... Oh, this door is symbolic for, you know, the entryway to someone's soul and blah, 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 blah. I think he was just like, oh, I need to have two characters that show uh, the difference of generations. Someone who who knows everybody and is connected to everybody and built their cribs, was there since they were babies and continues to know who everybody is, built something right for that was important to everybody's life. And then now we have this this younger character, this adult who's he's not an elderly he's not a child it's it's simply put the generation that is running things now comes out and is like no we need to replace all these old things with this new thing with this modern thing i think the choice of the door could have been replaced by like almost anything like you could have made the argument that like oh maybe he was a roofer right maybe it's about fences Um, Maybe it's about plumbing, whatever. But the fact that he specifically picks door, I think, is more reflective of him as an individual, Kiarostami as an individual having a fascination on doors, as opposed to 
picking the door because it means X, Y, Z. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I mean, and but here's the thing, Farhan. With everything in filmmaking being deliberate, mm-hmm. he didn't pick fences or roofs. He picked, he did pick doors. Yeah. And again, going back to the opening shot, yeah. it's like he made a very deliberate, the first thing we see in this film is the door. And it holds and, on it for a while. And he holds on it for a while. And actually there's a very, um, like, it, you know, I, I could go into like, Doors being the you know it's the it's the it's the front to your property it's it's a sense of security mm-hmm. a closed mm-hmm. door in your home everything kind of comes back to the sense of safety and personal mm-hmm. and you know he if you look at this door that's like on its hinges it's barely opening and closing the opening yeah. this this school door it's not quite open it's not quite closed you know that he's obsessed with uh, students and the education system mm-hmm. there's there's an argument that can be made if we're in the deeper analysis mm-hmm. section that it's like. Is he saying something about the confines of the school system and how he literally has the opening credits uh, and it goes, the Institute for the Intellectual Development of Children presents. That's the in the opening credits. Yeah. Saying that over the door, almost ironically over this door. And it, again, it's like it feels claustrophobic, mm-hmm. like the, you hear these kids playing, whatever. And then the teacher comes in and he's such an asshole. Like that, that teacher comes in and I he love starts the berating all of them. No, I love him, he's, but he's so mean. He's like, I don't I know, know if he's mean. I, like to me, he's like the stereotypical Iranian dad. Exactly. No, he is stereotypical. It's a product of the time and place. Yeah. But still, it's also like he, you know, he berates the kids. And then uh, Mohammad Reza says to the teacher, I didn't bring my notebook. And the teacher's like, well, where is it? He's like, I le- left it with my cousin. And then the other student goes, I have your notebook. And he's like, so you were lying to me right now when you said it was the cousin. He goes, no, that is my cousin. Yeah. And then the teacher changes the subject because he's like kind of embarrassed himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he, he's like, it's just, he, the, it's, it's a, it's a weird critique on like, I, I feel like he has such a fascination with students and kids. Can I and share? And it's like in defense of these kids, like they're, you know. I Can know. I share a personal anecdote with you? Please my first do. time watching this movie was with my mom, who was mm. a teacher in rural Iran. That was her yeah. job. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she was born and raised in a city. Uh, she spent a yeah. lot of time in rural areas where my grandfather had a bit of land. Um, but when she went and did... Uh, sorry, when she went and started working as a teacher, it was in these rural areas... And especially as a woman, like you have to be able to pick up on when kids are goofing around and when they're trying to pull a fast one on you. So you have to kind of be able to like call kids out on everything. Right. Right. Even if it's, if they're, when you (laughs) realize it's like, oh, okay, he's not goofing around that, that is his cousin, blah, 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 blah. Um, And you can't linger on it because if you do there, the kids are going to pick up on it and roast you for it. But those kids seem so sweet. And he like he frames them to look – you know that one kid who complains he has a back pain? Yeah. He's got such beautiful blue eyes. Yeah. He's such a – like they're so cute. I, I get that it. But he's lying. not framing these he kids. He doesn't have a back – he doesn't have back pain. I, I, know, I know. But there's just – he frames these kids to look so sweet and like helpless and innocent. He's not fla- He's not framing them to be like a bunch of goofballs you know, messing around. It's I would just, make the argument that that's largely because the teacher is the way that he is because the teacher right. is the way that he is. Everybody He's is doing like, a good job. yeah, if he doesn't, yeah. if he gave them an inch, I guarantee you those kids would take a mile. Look, the second they leave the, the school, they're like climbing all over this plow that's outside the class. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, 
goofing around with like the chickens and the donkeys and stuff. They're like one they're kid eight. runs by and like slaps three of his friends in the face and runs away. Like, yeah, they're eight. Yeah. <laughs> they're eight years old. It's what kids do. I give them a pass. Um, but then, okay, the last thing I'll say about doors is we've talked about this. The door salesman, mm-hmm. and he's like trying to upsell these new doors to the mm-hmm. towns folks, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, these are iron doors. Iron doors are gonna be more secure. Your old doors, they're going to fall apart and tear apart. These are the good doors you want for the front of your house. Yeah. They're going like, to last. He's like, they, they could end up in a museum hundreds of years from now. And people will be like, yes. you know, this was like Samad's door or whatever. Yeah, exactly. He, he essentially, again, the doors, man. He, it's, but it's a, it's a door salesman or repairman or whatever. And he has, I mean, I think this moment is, in my opinion, he's sort of, it's a dichotomy of like modernization versus mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. These this old these older men don't want the new doors. They mm-hmm. want their old doors. Mm-hmm. They're used to it and they're happy with it. And mm-hmm. this new guy is like, well, these are safer, secure doors, mm-hmm. and they'll last longer. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I don't know. Is there something deeper to be like assessed from that? Do you think there's like something he's saying about the changing of times or something? I think yeah. I think it has to do with the changing of times and also the idea of again perspective and treating each other with dignity um like i think what's happening there is this this guy who's middle-aged you could make the argument that he's not treating his elders with the dignity that he should be right right because he's like you don't need like this is garbage like you don't want blah, blah blah and he's basically taking a dump on their on their lifestyle, on the way that yeah. they lived and the way that their dads lived and all this stuff, right? Yeah. And so they're not going to want to listen to this guy, but they're like, well, I guess he's from the generation that runs things, so we have to listen. And it's kind of this weird thing where when you become you're you're a child when you're born, right? Then you become mm-hmm. an adult. And when you become an elderly, you almost become a child again, right? Right. So I think that's what's happening there is this, it's that transition between being an adult and becoming a child again. And I think it's, it's shown very directly by the passage of time and the change in technology where this guy's like, nope, you don't know what you're talking about. This is what's important. What's important is this iron door. Similar to how the adults are telling uh, Mamad, they're like, nope, you don't know what you're talking about. Your friend's book doesn't matter. What's important is your studies. It's this, yeah. this, that middle-aged generation is the one making, calling the shots and the yeah. elderly and the young are the ones being left out. Well, and so let me ask you something now, In, knowing that the time that this was shot mm-hmm. and we don't need to get super political about it, but like it was shot, it was filmed and produced in 1987. Mm-hmm. So you do have this film that's eight years post-revolution. Mm-hmm. Things have changed, not even for 10 years. And you have these middle-aged people calling the shots. Mm-hmm. They're telling the older people what's best for them. Mm-hmm. And they're telling the younger kid to shut up and listen. Mm-hmm. And this middle-aged guy who's selling these doors is promising them security and safety in these longer-lasting doors to the front of their house. Mm-hmm. Iron doors. Mm-hmm. Iron doors mm-hmm. that you can shut in the front of your house and they will last longer. I don't want to read too much more subtext into that. But there just seems to be a lot of like interesting parallels to what was going on with the generational gap with Iranians in the mid to late 80s. Mm-hmm. No? That's very fascinating. I yeah. think that that's <laughs> I think that that's an excellent analogy to make whether it was intended or not, but I think that that's 
a really great way to use this film to almost explain to people who don't know the history of Iran kind of what was happening in the 70s and 80s. Especially because yeah. the revolution that happened in 79 was largely a revolution of students. So that same right. guy who's building these iron doors would have been of that generation yeah, exactly. that, that kind of brought about the revolution. Whether he was, that character was involved or not, we have no idea. But, right, but, yeah. but the representation of that generation where you have those three generations in that scene. Um, but yeah, and I, I love that the, the old guy is like indulging in the conversation with him and he's like debating him and he's like, well, you know, like you need a door that's going to last forever. He's like, my door has lasted my whole life. He's like, yeah, yes. but it's going to fall apart. He's like, whatever, I'll get another door. And he's like, no, but this iron one will last forever. He's like, why do I need a door that lasts forever? He's like, it could end up in a museum. He's like, why do I care if it's in a museum? <laughs> well, <laughs> and I was going to get to this when we get to favorite quotes, but I'll, I'll say it, I'll say it once now and I'll say it again at favorite quotes. But when mm -hmm. the old man who's leading uh, Ahmed through the town at the end mm -hmm. is showing up and I made this door and I made this window and I made this door, his quote is, but now I watch them taking out these doors one by one and replacing them with iron doors. And no one asks what was wrong with the old doors. Mm. If they had some flaw, no one would have ever bought them. They say these iron doors last a lifetime. But how they calculate a lifetime, I don't know. That's kind of leading to exactly what you're saying. You know, mm. it's like, I don't know, it's one of my favorite uh, lines. And again, I'm going to probably just repeat it when we get to that section. Um, but yeah, okay. I think that's pretty good for deeper analysis. Uh, unless you have something else to add in terms of deep subtext before we move to critical reactions. No, not much more. I think that for me, it's a lot of what the film is about comes back to, you know, dignity and ageism and responsibility and community is a big one, especially when this kid's trying to find this house. He's like, yeah. I need to do this because this is my friend. This is a member yeah. of my community. This is a member of, of my social circle. And he's like, yeah. I need to like get out there and, and help him. And he it's doesn't know where he's selfless. going. Yeah. He just runs away when his mom's like, you need to do your work, blah, 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 blah. And then yeah. he, he tries to reason with her. And then when he can't, he just makes a run for it. Yeah. And then when he and gets it, to this town, he gets to the town and he looks around and he's like, oh, shoot, I have no idea where I'm going. And so he relies on the community to try to find a solution, to try to find where he is, how to get there. And again, when he's asking these middle-aged people, none of them help him. It's either yeah. other children or it's the elderly. Those are the only two groups that actually help him in the film. And again, yeah. you can make the argument that the elderly, it's, it's, it's that philosophy of you're born a child who becomes an adult who becomes a child again. Yeah. No, that's great. I was just going to add that I really like everything this kid does is just a selfless act mm -hmm. for his friend. Like there's mm -hmm. no vanity, ego, selfishness. And at the end, doing the homework for him almost becomes this revolutionary act in the defiance of all these people who are just kind of looking out for themselves. Mm -hmm. He's looking out for someone else. Mm -hmm. And he seems to be the only person in the town who's doing that, mm. which is again, why he maybe gets the flower at the end. Mm. Critical reactions. Um, I just have one thing I read that I really liked, uh, if you'll allow me. American film critic and author Jonathan Rosenbaum in 2015 called Kiarostami the greatest living filmmaker and called the film, along with Through the Olive Trees and Life Goes On, which is the Coker trilogy, 
He called it sustained meditations on singular landscapes and the way ordinary people live in them. Obsessional quests that take on the contours of parables, concentrated inquiries that raise more questions than they answer, and comic as well as cosmic poems about dealing with personal and impersonal disaster. They're about making discoveries and cherishing, cherishing what's in the world, including things that we can't understand, end quote. And I really like that description. I think that that guy's favorite book is a thesaurus. <laughs> yes, like I amount, don't disagree with that. The amount of hyperbole in his assessment of these movies, I think, is insane. Especially when you're talking about a movie that's known for being a slice of life, <laughs> simplistic film. And I'm not saying simplistic in a derogatory way. I'm saying simplistic in a way that's very beautiful. It's very yeah. humble. No, you know course. what I mean. So it's for this guy to to come out and be like. <laughs> You know, the philosophy behind this film and the impact that it has had, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... Well, it's kind of what we're doing. <laughs> I guess, but like, I think that we're having a, a more frank dialogue about it as opposed yeah. to... Even I'm just, just saying... To me, it's, I, I take issue with the way that he words his point as opposed to the point itself. I would agree yes. with his point. I agree with his point. I agree with what he's trying to say. I don't like the way that he's doing it. And this is why we're good counterparts for this, because I really like the way he said it. And just, it's so writerly. And mm. I, you know, as being, being the writer in the podcast of the two of us. Yeah. I mean, I know you're a writer as well, but being the so solely wow. a writer. <laughs> yeah, game recognized game is what I'm saying with this guy's critical analysis. Hey, I feel it. I feel you. Uh, trivia time. I've got some fun facts to throw at you. Maybe you know some of them. Hit Maybe me. you haven't. Hit me. But uh, Akira Kur Okay, this, this film made Akira Kurosawa's top 100 films of all time list. Whoa. So Akira Kurosawa himself saw this film and was like, this is one of the best films I've ever seen. That's awesome. Um, Babak Ahmadpur, who plays Ahmad, was considered potentially dead after the 1990 earthquake, which is what led to him, Abbas Kurosawa, making the second film, mm -hmm. the documentary about trying to find him. But... Um, Apparently, he did not die in the earthquake, as uh, a film journalist, Robert Osborne, said. He made movies afterwards. So this actor has gone on to become a filmmaker. I haven't even heard of any of his films, but this little boy apparently is not a little boy anymore and making films. Um, that I didn't know. I, I do know one thing that, that Kiarosami talks about in the, the Q&A at the Aga Khan, where someone in the audience is like, oh, when I watch, when the first time I watched this movie, I was very young, and I... I interpreted this film as being very intense. It caused me a lot of stress watching this film. Yes. Because I, I, I identified with this child and I was, and the stakes felt so high. He's like, mm -hmm. but now rewatching it, it made me smile and laugh at numerous times. And he's like, do you ever get that watching your films? And he's like, I can never have that kind of uh, reaction to watching my films because I know these people as people. But this time when I did watch it, the whole time I was thinking about the actor who plays the young boy, Ahmed. the main character. Yeah, Ahmad. And uh, by the way, for our listeners, Ahmad and Mamad are interchangeable. Mamad is like a nickname for Ahmad. It's also a nickname for Muhammad. Funny enough. Yeah. But um, he was mentioning that he had recently had a conversation with that kid. They had been reconnected. And there was a bunch of personal... Um, crises going on in his life and that oh, wow. was what was being brought up to him 
And he mentions, he's like, I don't want to get into what those crises are. It's none of your concern, but that's what was going through my mind. And that's why when the translator is tra- translating his answer, she leaves that part out. That's interesting. I didn't catch that part. Um, also in trivia, this uh, this is ranked. This film is ranked the number is number ninety four non English speaking films in the critics poll conducted by the BBC in twenty eighteen. Um, and as I mentioned before, it made a BFI, the British Film Institute's top. It made the top fifty films you should see before you're fifteen. Before you're fifteen so, or before you're fifty. Before you're fifteen, they said like see this movie in your coming of age years. What? Like child or teenager is looking up BFI's list of 50 movies to watch before you're 15. The kind that will be influenced by a movie like this before the 15. I guess. Were you into yeah. that? Like before I was, I was watching like superhero movies. I don't yeah. know. I think I watched yeah. Terminator for the first time as a teenager. Like, yeah, it took me a long time to grow, have a growing appreciation for Iranian cinema. I definitely wasn't checking that out at like 12 or 13. Yeah. Um, okay, so best scene section. Okay. Uh, I mean, this is just, we discussed some of our favorite scenes, yeah. but w- you can take it away. Um, my favorite scenes, one of them is the one where he's trying to talk to that group of people and they're all just kind of ignoring him and he like keeps the door salesman. To- yeah. 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 That one. Um, that's probably my number three. Number two mm-hmm. is when he's on the walk with the old man who's like, I built this I door, I built scene. that door. Yeah. And he's like, I actually know your dad. I built the door to your own house. He's like, I even built your father's crib when he was a baby. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's obsessed with doors, man. I'm telling Windows you. Windows Ready for my lame ready for my lame pun? It's adorable. Ah, uh, love Fun. it. Love it. Okay, go on. Um and then tied for number one mm-hmm. is the scene, the first time that you see him make a break for it to push there and the music is playing yes. and he's like running music, yeah. and you get like the iconic shot of him running up the, the trail. Zigzag. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, on the, and he runs through all these different locations and each location is visually simple. So it's easy to track him, but mm-hmm. different from shot to shot. So that each time he goes back and forth between the two towns, it's very clear to the audience. Okay. Now he's on his way back. Now he's coming yes. back to push it. Yeah. Now he's going back to Koke. Now he's going back to push it because yeah. the audience has seen those three or four establishing shots. And every time it's the same framing. Um, and then the other sh- scene that's tied for number one, this is more of just like a specific shot than it is a scene. But when he first comes home from school and he's, he goes in the room to get something, I think mm-hmm. he's going to get the, the bottle for his mom. And mm-hmm. you see, it's, it's one shot, he's framed right in the middle, and there's a, a window, and yep. through that window, you see his friends talking to him, being like, hey, come and play. And then there's a mirror in front of him as well, and, th- and you can see his face through the mirror. And so you get everything in this one shot. You get him coming right. in, you get this beautiful composition with him center-framed and everything. You get yep. the action that he's doing by like collecting the bottles. You see his friends in the window talking to him and you see his face and his reaction in the mirror. And it's all in one shot. And I thought it was framed beautifully. And it's such a efficient way to show all the beats of that scene without having yeah. to do multiple setups. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great. I remember that shot. Um, those are all good. I have a few like those are. I have similar. I didn't do like a top three, two, one, mm. but for my op- I have my favorite scenes. The opening scene in school, I just really like. Mm. Um, and I, I very much like the door salesman scene. How much they're ignoring him. Mm-hmm. Um, the final shot in terms of just shots. I love that final shot of the flower that I mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, and you know, even that final scene when before Ahmed shows up and you see um, Nimat Zadeh sitting there and he's like, "I'm gonna get in so much shit." I didn't remember. You just see this dread and the guy, the teacher's checking everyone's homework one by one. And you're like, he's like, "I'm gonna get expelled," and you just see this dread creeping up on him. He's mm-hmm. like, "I'm gonna deep shit." And then Ahmed shows up in the last minute with the notebook. I really like that. Yeah. And I think this is probably my favorite, number one scene. Is my favorite shot is is the the scene with the old man walking with the mm. young boy and pointing out all the doors and windows. But I will add also a very funny moment I like is when he finally decides he's going to go run out and give the book to his friend. Do mm. you notice the joke that they put in there where mm. he starts running, then he looks at what book he has and he realizes again, he has the wrong book and he runs back to his notebook. Oh, and I switches missed books that. Again. That's so funny. Yeah. It's such a funny little joke of like, he's like, you know what? I'm doing it. He's going to run out and like grab, get save his friends and he starts running and then you see him check the book and then he's like oh i have the wrong book and he runs back to his that's so funny bag and switches well the even in again. class so, when he finally gets there and gives him the book again he gives yeah, him he his own again. book instead yeah. yeah you know in in a modern iranian film what would happen is either a he gets to the class too late and the teacher has already asked him and he's like oh i don't have my book or whatever and he's like get out of my class, blah, 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 blah. And then as he leaves, like, Mamad doesn't see him leave, but he, like, leaves. He's crying. He leaves. And then Mamad comes and sits down, and he's like, where is he? Where's my friend? Mm-hmm. And then the movie would just end there. That's, like, modern yes. Iranian version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or when the teacher sees that he's like, this isn't your book. This is his book. Then him kicking both of them out or something. Yeah, like that's, that's the Asghar Fahadi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either one of those two is the, the modern Iranian ending. Yeah. And then some sad music plays superimposed over the kid crying again because Kiarostami ripped another photo. Yeah. Uh, uh, worst scenes. Do you have a least favorite scene? I mean, you don't have to have one, but... I have one. You... I, I'm, yeah. I'm not, like, particularly bothered by it. It's just the first old man that he approaches when he's asking hey do you know where my friend lives um it's the guy who's just chilling there smoking cigarettes and he's like no i don't and then he leaves you don't need that like you already have so many obstacles for him and like people who distract him with side quests and whatever that you that one is unnecessary and it feels like he's just trying to make the script longer to turn this into a feature film instead of a short right yeah yeah um there's a uh I have a, well, I mean, this, I think you disagree with me, but I just, in terms of like my least favorite scene mm. is because of how much I don't like the grandpa sending him out on an errand to get cigarettes that he doesn't even need. And essentially he goes on to like discuss with his friend, the value in beating your children yeah. and how it will make them better. It's just, you know, it's one of those things that I get it for time and place, but it's just like, I'm like, it just makes me not like the grandpa at all in a yeah. world of people being mean and not listening to him, even his family member doing it. Yeah. I'm just like, ah, I don't like that scene. I mean, I still think it's a scene you should have in the film. It's just like, eh, maybe that's the moment I go and like grab a glass of water or something. Or a glass that's of funny. Wine. I'm just that's like, why that's, I like that scene is because it, yeah, it shows totally. 
the the difference between their philosophies where I know he's like for the kid. I know. But you need that because there's it's that juxtaposition, right? There's there's my artsy word for the podcast where you you need that grandfather character to have that point of view on society so that it makes you appreciate the main character so much more. That being said, I wouldn't be surprised if Kiara Sami had the opposite intention there where he actually agrees with the grandfather. Given some of right, the answers yeah. that he gives in the Q&A, I feel like he might actually agree with their grandfather's philosophy there, where he believes that, you know, sometimes kids do just need to fall in line. And sometimes mm-hmm. you do just need to beat them just so they know who's boss or just so they know like what to do, blah, 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 blah. Which he also portrays that same quality in himself by ripping the poor kid's photo. Like it... Yeah, absolutely. Um... I mean, we can also we'll get to we'll get to that part when we talk about what's aged poorly because it's some interesting stuff. But yes, yeah, I totally get you. Uh, he probably, I think, he believes in. I think, like as the director and writer and creator of that world, he probably slightly believes a little bit of every philosophy he's showing. Probably, like he's yeah. not really leaning towards one side. He sort of probably kind of agrees with everyone mm. to a certain extent, right? Um, but that being said, that being my least favorite scene, it's followed immediately by the door salesman scene, which I like a lot. Mm. So. There's that. Um, a section I call Damn, That's Poetry, where you just kind of, do you have a favorite quote in the film? Because this one I found at first hard, because I don't think it's necessarily a quotable movie. Mm. Like Taste of Cherry, I think, has a lot of profoundly beautiful quotes. Mm. This is more like cinematic language, the beauty. and It's like a lot of quieter moments. Or when people are talking, it's like, Come here, can I show you this thing? Mm. Oh, no, I can't. I'm sick. Come, let me just show you. No, I can't. I'm sick. Just come for a second. I want to show you. No, I can't. It's a lot of lyrical, just yeah, back yeah. and forth ping pong. But there is one quote I had, but I'll let you go first if you have one. I've already said it like multiple times, but it's he only needs to be asked once. So he gets paid 12000 I need to be right. asked yeah, yeah. twice. So I only get paid 6000 And to me, it's, it's, the, it's summarized by the idea that conformity pays. And I think yeah. it's something that the grandfather is encouraging, but I think that in a lot of ways, whether it's intended or not, the film discourages that because it's like, if this boy does conform to what all these adults are telling him, this other kid is going to be screwed. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. That's a good quote. I think my personal quote is a favorite quote. I just, it was one I already mentioned. But it's that old man walking with the kid. Mm. I'm, I built this door. I built that window. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I made the door of your friend's house too. I made the window here too. 40 years ago, it hasn't changed one bit. But now I watch them taking out these doors one by one and replacing them with iron doors. And no one asks what is wrong with the old doors. Mm-hmm. If they had some flaw, no one would have ever bought them. They say these iron doors last a lifetime. But how they calculate a lifetime, I don't know. To mm-hmm. me, that's my favorite quote. I really like it. It's beautiful. And again, it just harkens back to this idea of like modernization versus tradition mm-hmm. and the changing of times. And I feel, again, Kiarostami has some obsession with doors that mm. is beyond the just surface level. Mm. Um, but okay, uh, favorite performance. I feel like this one, <laughs> there's, for me, it's a no-brainer. It's Ahmed. The, uh, yeah. Babak Ahmed, who plays him, is the best. I feel like for other films, we'll probably have a larger canon of choices yeah. in front of us but i don't know for me it was the kid is, is it the same for you yeah too? for me too and i think part of it is because it seems like and i know that that kiara sammy says that there's obviously a script 
I think that the kid doesn't necessarily know his lines verbatim, but mm-hmm. he knows the crux of what he's supposed to be saying in the scene. And yeah. as a result, he kind of fumbles over what he says and he's really mumbly. It's not as clear in the subtitles because the subtitles are very clear and direct. But when you listen to him in Farsi, he repeats himself a lot or he says things kind of backwards mm-hmm. and it feels much more natural and much more real. And I think that's also reflective of his performance as an actor. Right. I think that a lot of indie films try to do that naturalistic approach to dialogue where they'll get to a scene and they'll like get their actors to just kind of improv the dialogue a little bit. And there's mm-hmm. some indie films that I've seen that do it terribly and I just get so frustrated watching them. Sometimes it's done really well. And I think it's a testament to those actors. And in this case, mm-hmm. this little boy does a phenomenal job at it. Yeah. Yeah. He's he just, he's, and even the kid who plays Mohamed Reza, mm-hmm. um, the crying, I mean, I know the crying was, <laughs> it was manipulative yeah. and borderline emotional assault, yeah. or rather it was emotional assault, but I feel like, the kids, all the kids just kind of, they feel so natural yeah. in their performances, which is a testament to their acting, but as well as Kurosawa's directing. Yeah. Um, nitpicks and hot takes. Do you have any hot takes or nitpicks about the film that you're like, I don't like this part so much, or I don't think this part's great? Um, the kid crying thing is obviously one, but that's like a very meta nitpick. Um, the yeah. other one I think is, I think you can probably lose about 20 minutes from the film. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just what the interactions and running around just in general, there's like moments where you kind of get like, even the scene where he's walking with the old man, which I right. said is one of my favorite scenes. I think you could cut it down a little bit. Like, yeah. I'm not saying make it like snappy and fast paced, but there's just a little bit of redundancy in some scenes. And I think mm-hmm. that even in some of the side quests, there's some parts that you just don't need, or you can, at least trim it a little. And this is, I'm also saying this largely because I come from an editing background. Kiara Stami also, here's the thing. I've said this to someone once before and they were like, where did you hear that? And I can't find it. And I've been trying to find it for years. So if someone listening knows where this is from, please let me know. It's also certainly possible that I heard this from a personal friend of Kiara Stami. But what I had heard was that because when he first was coming up, he wasn't very technically proficient in editing he would let things run very long because he just didn't want to yeah he just didn't want to deal with the hassle of having to cut something up too much Mm -hmm. and it kind of became what he was known for um that paired with the fact that he prefers telling short films but he's encouraged to tell longer format stuff so he's all often trying to find things to intentionally draw things out. I think that you could have gotten this down from an hour 20 to an hour and it still would have felt just as much of a slice of life with very intentional pacing without it feeling too, too slow. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I'm okay with the runtime, but I hear like, that's a really interesting thing you're saying about the editing and taking the long takes. I hadn't heard that, but maybe you can find your friend who knows. I've been trying. Uh, my like, I don't really have any nitpicks or hot takes other than just that teacher comes in so angry, and I'm just like, dude, fucking chill. I get it. 
time and place. It's like it's a product of it. But I love it. I God, actually made a asshole. point. I made a, a note when I came in. I was like, this principle is very accurate uh, to a Persian father. I wrote, he also sounds a little more city educated and the kids sound more like they're from this area. Also, mm-hmm. all the kids genuinely look like they're from the north of Iran, which obviously they are. Whereas the, the teacher character might be able to pass as being from somewhere else, which mm-hmm. typically the teachers who would come and teach in these rural areas in the north were usually from the city. So he has a little bit more of a city accent, I find. Interesting. Like Tehran? I wouldn't say Tehran. It would probably be like the capital city of some northern province. Like even right, like okay. Sari or something. But um, what... My uh, what's it's not nitpick again, but a small kind of thing. Like, how does the dad not get a single line of dialogue in this film? Not one. Yeah, he's not there at the beginning, and then we see him at the end of the film. He's kind of like fiddling with the radio yeah. and just staring at his son. But like, still no dialogue. Hmm. Yeah, it's just it's just an interesting choice creatively, I guess. Yeah. Um, what aged poorly? Um, I have two thoughts. Okay. Uh. One is the grandfather describing the importance of beating your child. It just doesn't age for a 2023 audience. Again, I know time, place, location, different. But yeah, it's just sort of, I feel like we've evolved from that a bit, or I hope rather. I think that I I would make a counter argument that that is more relevant now than ever before because it's reflective of the older philosophy. Because this is an old man, right? right? And it's, yeah, it's yeah, meant yeah. to show that he's different. So the fact that he has this philosophy, I think, is, is very fitting. I'm not saying it's not accurate. I'm just like, ugh. I just, it just makes me not like him that much. Yeah. One other thing I just want to say about the old man. Yeah, yeah. He's also not saying, I beat my kid. Or my son should beat his son. He's saying right. that when he was a kid... His dad beat him. Yes. So yes. even this no, old man. No, he said he man, beat a son. Does Didn't he? he say he beat a son though? No, I, I thought, don't know. I, think. I thought he was t- telling the story about how his dad would beat him. That he was like, right. every, every day my dad would give me one real. Yeah. But every two weeks he would give me one beating. And there would be times yeah. where he would forget to give me the reals, but there would never be a time where he would forget to give me a beating. And then he yeah. says, in my estimation, I think it's still a good thing to give your kid the occasional beating just so they're <laughs> right. always kept in line, right? Yeah. Which to me is kind of indicative of an older time, like a, a right. time that is no longer relevant, you know? And yeah. I think that that's kind of the, the counter scene to the scene with the other old man who makes the valid point about the door. And maybe the truth in it is... Okay, some things from older generations, like beating your kids, you probably shouldn't do anymore. But maybe some things where you're like getting rid of these beautiful wooden doors, you should think twice about it, you know? Right. Um, Yeah, that's fair. Things that age poorly to me, again, and, and I know that this is a hot take paired in with the what aged poorly... Um, yeah. I think that some of that pacing again, I think that some scenes linger a little too much. Yeah. Um, and I think that if this movie was to come out today, I think absolutely people would be critical of it. 
But I think of the pacing of the pacing. But I think specifically because this is a Kiara Sammy film and we know that his pacing is like this. I don't think anyone would make the argument that, oh, it's it's too slow, blah, 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 which is why I think it's a hot take. Yeah. Paired with aged poorly. Yeah. The one other thing I'll add for what aged poorly, and I'm not going to go too far into it, especially for our first podcast mm. episode, but I'd say there's an argument to be made that Abbas Kiarostami has aged a little bit poorly mm. in terms of um, societal... Um, uh, there, there's been growing concerns about his... I mean, first of all, the way he, you said you know, he directs his child actors mm-hmm. and maybe emotionally manipulates them, but there's been like claims that he's stolen people's ideas. Mm-hmm. And hasn't treated a lot of women in the industry properly. But that's, again, for another podcast entirely. But mm-hmm. I'd say that there is a fair argument to be made that the director himself is kind of like... He could got away with things in 1985 that if a director did today, yeah. they would be uh, pretty much persona non grata in the film industry. For sure. For sure. There's been... And you can Google it. Like, you could literally just type in, like, Kiara Stami Me Too and things will come up. Yeah. So... Um, that's definitely out there. I'm sure that if he was around now, um, there would be more information available about that stuff and it would be a way bigger concern than unfortunately it was at, at his time. At his time, these things were ignored and they shouldn't have been. So yeah, Yeah, I think to your point, he has definitely aged poorly as a person. Um, Yeah. And it's, I mean, again, for the purpose of the podcast, it's important to separate the uh, artist from the artist as a personal life and their personal things from the, the, the work that they've created. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the films he's made, I think, are profoundly beautiful and impactful in Iranian culture. Although, yeah, there's- I don't know how much you can separate it, because even if you look at at least his films that I've seen, women mm-hmm. never have substantial parts in his film. Right. No, that's, that's a valid argument to be made. I don't, you know, again, it's partially like a product of the 80s, though, man. You look at Hollywood, they were all like, these mm-hmm. are all movies about how great men are. And women were often, for the most part, mm-hmm. sort of like secondary or, or third to, you know, male protagonists. Yeah. That's like a Hollywood thing. That's a film industry thing. Yeah, that was kind and, of- and the movie's also set in the like first decade post-revolution Iran. And it's yes. set in a village in Iran where even during times where women did have more freedom in the villages in Iran, they still didn't like these photos that you see online where women live very liberally and had a lot of freedoms in Iran. Those are photos in the cities. Like if you went to the rural areas, they were oftentimes persecuted within the, the like local rule of law or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So you could make the argument that, well, a female character couldn't have a big part in this kind of setting. Yeah. I don't know how true that is, but you can make that argument. There was also a thing I'd read where one critic had said, perhaps one of the reasons that these directors work a lot with children is it's a way to talk about censorship and morality placed on women. But instead it's like a skirt around instead of talking about 
the mora- morality and injustices against women, mm. you could actually put the children in the center and be like, look at how these children are being ignored. Look mm. at how these children are being uh, told what to do and how to behave and morality and all that stuff. But really, it was their way of talking about women's rights mm. and getting past the government because like, oh, no, no, we're not talking about women's rights. Don't worry, Islamic regime. We're telling about children who are being told what to do and right. how to act. That's so there's an interesting thing. Yeah, like that. Like they could have been because Panay does it, too. Um, in his films, like the white balloon, where it's like you're talking, they're children protagonists, but maybe, mm-hmm. maybe they were trying to find a way to talk about women's rights, and mm. this was the only way they could get these films made under the sanction, under the, uh, the the rules and regulations based on the Islamic government. I don't know. It's, it's potential. It's a thesis. That's really a interesting. Uh, very interesting um, thesis. Yeah. Double feature lineup. What film would you think this would pair really nicely with if you went to a double feature billing in the theater? I, I mean, I think the obvious answer is one of the other films in the Coker trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. So my real answer is that. If I was to give, like, an out-there answer, um, I would say Samad Madrasi Miravad, which is a film about basically Iranian Laurel and Hardy or Iranian Charlie Chaplin. And mm-hmm. it's this <laughs> villager... Um, in a rural area of Iran, but he's an adult and all these other people in the movie, they're all adults, but they never had the opportunity to go to school because schools hadn't come to their village yet. And so now all these villagers who are adults have an opportunity to go to school and the antics that happen are freaking hilarious. And I think that it would be a really interesting foil to this, where this movie is very serious. It's about children and, you know, it's about, in my opinion, ageism and about community and all these things to then watch the Samad film, I think is like a really hilarious lineup. And it also helps because one of them is, is slice of life. It's slower. So then to go into a comedy immediately after, I think kind of gives you a little bit of everything. Yeah. That's, I haven't seen Samad. We're going to do that probably for a future episode, but um, I actually went Quite outside the box, I, you know. I was thinking if you were going to screen this with a film and try to get a broader audience to see Iranian films, mm. I was thinking non-Iranian films you'd pair it with. Mm. So I thought of uh, Cinema Paradiso, okay, uh, Life is Beautiful, mm. Jojo Rabbit, mm. or even Boyhood, mm. because just just pairing them with films with other children lead protagonists, kind of dealing with really heavy adult dramatic content, but it's like through the perspective or the eyes of a child. Mm. I think could be like thematically and tonally, you know, mm-hmm. like picture this paired with like, you see this and then you watch like Taika Waititi's Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. You know, like there could be some interesting, like you could draw some parallels. That's a heavy day. <laughs> yeah, would, it's a heavy I day. I would be emotionally exhausted. <laughs> I love both of those movies, but watching those yeah. two back to back, I would be emotionally yeah. exhausted. But thematically, you know what, then, I totally understand it. Let's, you know what, to make it lighter, we'll do, uh, we'll do, uh, where's the friend's house paired with dude, where's my car? <laughs> or, and then you have your double feature right there. Quite movies that ask questions about people trying to find things. Yeah. You could call the double billing dude. Where's my friend? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, can this be made into a Hollywood remake? Your thoughts? I don't think Hollywood would ever make a movie based on this. If they did, they'd fatten it up with like a, B and C plot, maybe throw in like a romance plot or like a backdrop of war or something. 
Um, yeah. Stripped to its core, the most I could see is this being adapted into an episode of a TV show, the same way that Seven Samurai often gets done. Now right. it's yeah, yeah. more often adapted into episodes of shows, like recently it was adapted into an episode of The Mandalorian. You could totally have a side quest episode in The Mandalorian where mm-hmm. there was like a mix up of something and he's going around with Grogu trying to find somebody and then he has to go back and forth between two planets and then he finds this person and gives it to him. Or maybe it's like we follow Grogu for a whole episode and he's trying to find Mando. And it's all yeah, about yeah. the antics that he gets into going back and forth between these two planets. The Ahmed Lorian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Or the, that's pretty the, good. the Mamad Lorian or the Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mamad Lorian. Uh, uh I think I don't have any specifics, but I think it would be possible like the one thing I would say would be interesting was like, what would Wes Anderson do with if he had the script? Like, I would be kind of fascinated to see a Wes Anderson. Oh, that's interesting. Of this. Or like, again, I said Jojo Rabbit. Like, what if Taika Waititi did this script? You That'd know, be I cool. feel like there it could be a version of a Hollywood remake that would it would invite interest, even though it's not necessary to make a Hollywood remake of this film. That's really cool. Um, okay, and then final thoughts and grades. Um. I don't have too much for final thoughts because, like, I just I shared all my thoughts on it for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. My overall grade, actually, why don't you give your final thoughts? Because I don't have final thoughts, and so then we can both just give our grades. Yeah, my final thoughts are just I, I think you know is this is my third time watching the film, and it, I, it's my the most I've ever loved it. Actually, mm-hmm. really with like really paying attention to it, I I thought I it's an excellent film in ways I hadn't really discovered. Um, you know, at the end, after this entire journey, he goes on this entire journey and he gets to the front door of the house and then he kind of runs back. He's there. The old man has led him there, but it's now the wind is coming up and it's nighttime and it's dark. And it's like, he kind of just, I, I couldn't figure out at first why he doesn't go in, but then it kind of, the more I thought about it, like, he's just a scared kid. Like he gets scared at the end. Mm. You could see he doesn't really want to walk back alone. He hears a dog barking and all this stuff. And after this entire journey, you go and you're just reminded that it's just a little kid. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was like, there's something really beautiful about that. Um, and again, like it just really hit differently this third time watching it mm. and all this stuff about the doors that I believe is there. Mm. It made it really stand out. So I'd say it's an excellent film. And though it's not my favorite Kurosami film and that my favorite Kurosami film will be for another episode down the road. Uh, it's up there in my top five, maybe top three. So I would give this like an A minus. Okay. Like it's an A, but probably like a low A. Okay. I'd surface around there. Yeah. I feel like we're kind of around the same ballpark. I give it a B plus. That's fair. Um, That's probably more accurate to what I should have given. I don't yeah, know. I feel like A minus is probably pretty solid too, especially given how all these different critical film lists are giving it like A, A plus, A plus plus, and all this stuff. For me, yeah. it's. It's a little bit more of a B plus. I, I feel like a little bit of the intrigue, like the cultural intrigue, isn't necessarily there for me because obviously we're born and raised in this culture. So when you strip that back, we're really just left with, okay, yeah, it's a slice of life and we get a little bit more of the nostalgia aspect because it's, it's a slice of life that we are very familiar with, right? Right. Especially my family... Literally, my dad's family is Azeri and my mom's family is Mazanarani. So this is like basically an amalgamation of the two, even linguistically. Yeah. So yeah. for me, it, it yeah, it definitely ends up being more of a uh, a B minus. 
Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're not too far up. I'm going to be curious to see where, as we go through other episodes, 10 episodes down the line, like how far apart, how often are we f- chasms apart from each other? Like I'll be mm. excited for the day you give something an A plus and I've given it like a D minus or something. That yeah. would be an interesting film yeah. to discuss. And I think for episode two, we're very likely going to do, uh, the 1974 Iranian film, The Deer by Masoud Kimiai. And, uh, you know, I mean, there'll be a lot to discuss there. I had never seen it. So watching it will be, it'll be a first for Mm -hmm. me. I don't know about you. Yeah. I think I might've seen bits and pieces of it as a kid, but I don't think I've ever seen it in its entire, in its entirety. Um, the name of our podcast is also relevant to that film as well as, uh, an event that happened in, Iranian history that's very important to modern Iranian history, but we can talk about that next episode. Yeah, it's worth a Google, but, you know, we'll leave that for you. Um, Farhan, thank you very much for your time. Thank uh, you. Thank you, very, thank you very much to the listeners for listening. For Cinema Rex, this is Kaveh Mohebi. And I'm Farhan Moradi. Until next time, Be'omide Didar. Nice. Music for Cinema Rex was written and performed by Sohele Satyajan.